Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers with the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Well, hi, everybody. It's good to speak with you today. My name's Joel, if you're new to Emmanuel, and thank you for joining us. Uh, if you're in Shoreham uh, or North Hove uh, or South Hove at the Villas or here uh, and the Clarendon Centre, uh, we are going through the book of James and we are looking at the subject of trials. That's really a, a key theme for this whole letter. I've told the story many times uh, over the years as a pastor of the prisoner of war camp where some prisoners were told to uh, do some extremely mundane tasks which they were um, they were told to, to do in, in repetition but eventually it became obvious that the, the, the task was pointless. They were told to move some debris from one side of the camp to the other and then they were told to move it back and forth and back and forth. It was menial, it was exhausting, it was slow, um, it, was, it was pointless and futile deliberately. The, it, was, it was a sadistic attempt by the guards of the camp to, to deliberately cultivate a sense of futility in the hearts and minds of those inmates of the camp. They wanted to bring them to a point of deep depression. And sure enough, one of the results was that the, these inmates, these prisoners, began to commit suicide. It's a powerful story showing the need that we each inwardly have as human beings for a sense of meaning in our lives, purpose. Without it, we suffer, we, we wither, uh, we, we struggle to even exist. And, and the Bible gives a, a powerful explanation for why this longing for meaning is inside us. There's, there's a, a famous phrase from the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, where it says that God has put eternity into our hearts. We inwardly know deep down. We, we can't not know that unless our lives mean something in eternity, they don't really mean anything at all. We, we, we can't deny the reality of that. Even 
non-believing people, secular people, will have to admit that a universe without meaning is intolerable. It's, it's, you have to stop thinking about it. You have to pretend some kind of meaning. If, you, if, if the world doesn't mean anything, if there's no God, if there's no ultimate plan or design or purpose behind everything that happens, then we have to sort of make our own meanings. We have to pretend some kind of meaning because we can't exist without some sense of it. But even then, we're kind of, we're having to sort of dope ourselves up. It's a sort of self-delusion. A, a, a philosopher called Tom Nagel, who's not a Christian at all, uh, made this comment that I, I found honest and, and revealing. He said this, even if you produce a great work of literature, you could, you could sport or commerce or uh, whatever, you know, art or, or design, which continues to be read or enjoyed for thousands of years from now, eventually the solar system will cool or the universe will wind down and collapse and all trace of your effort will vanish. The problem is that although there are justifications for most things, big and small, that we do within life, none of these explanations explain the point of your life as a whole. It wouldn't matter if you had never existed. And after you've gone out of existence, it won't matter that you did exist. That's rare honesty, I think. It's somebody facing the, the huge, awe-inspiring reality of eternity and daring to measure the meaning of its existence against those scales, against that framework, and coming to the, the unwelcome, unpleasant and... Uh, hard to face verdict that life without an eternal meaning is life without a meaning and therefore intolerable. Now, what the Bible draws our attention back to all the time is the wonderful, encouraging, <laughs> comforting affirmation, the, 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 the reassurance that indeed life does have meaning, that the lives that you and I live have eternal meaning, eternal significance. The problem is that it's hard for us to come to terms with the reality of that sometimes. It's, it's hard perhaps even to be persuaded of it because life can seem so haphazard and jagged and, and random to us. But that's why the book of James is so practically helpful because although James gets into the grit of life in all kinds of, of various ways, he's doing it, as he said from the very beginning of the letter, to help us to, to see life in the context of eternal purpose and, and to make decisions, wise decisions in evaluating our own lives uh, accordingly. So we've got even in the passage that we've just read in, in uh, verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, the crown of life. There is an appeal there. We're meant to feel the, the weightiness of that, that there's, there's an eternal crown, there's destiny intended. God made us, put us into existence 
for a crown, for something lasting, something eternal, something substantial that will matter forever and ever, even more than the applauded achievements of this passing age that we receive so much gratification from. We love it when people respect us and, and look up to us and honour us and admire us. We feel the wonder of it. But all these things will wither and fade and be forgotten. There's such a thing as to be honoured, received, loved in eternity. Without fade, uh, without reversal. And this is what the, the Bible encourages, urges us to prize and treasure and pursue more than anything else, because it's the only thing that will give a lasting guarantee of eternal gratification, purpose, meaning. So James is, is helping us to see things straight, helping us not to succumb to a kind of view of the universe, it's just random, arbitrary, meaningless, cruel in its kind of randomness. The reality is for sure that we have to make a decision. We have to line up our thinking. We have to do what Matt Carver was saying to us last week and reckon, to, to quote from the very first section of the, the letter as, as Matt was helping us, verse 2, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. You have to count it joy. You have to decide. You have to do the unglamorous, uninspiring thing of deciding inwardly, I count it, I reckon on it, I decide that life is not meaningless. I choose that. It often feels meaningless, especially when we go through difficult seasons or trying seasons or, or persistent delays. You know, we go through long-term disappointments. We go through times that don't seem to come to an end and it's hard to imagine when it's going to come to an end. We think, when is COVID going to be really over? When, when, are, when are we finally going to get back to normal? And the, the, the sense of delay can lead to a, a, a bitterness. It can make our hearts sick when, when hope is deferred. And we feel that this is just random. This is just, we're just being taken for a ride. And we've learned, especially this week, I guess, that we, we, the public do not like being taken for a ride, don't like being deceived, don't like being treated as fools. And we can kind of think, well, the world is a sick joke. If there is a God, he's treating us as fools. He wants us to believe that he's, he's got purpose and meaning and the difficult things he puts us through. He can't have. He can't have. It's all, it's all a joke. It's all meaningless. And we are making a decision at that point to take a certain path that we don't have to take. We, we have two paths available throughout our lives. You, you always, all through your life, you've got two paths available. You can either pursue the route of, a, of accepting that life is meaningless that the, the things, the difficult, bad struggles, the, the, the suffering, the pain that you go through, it's, it's just a cosmic joke. It's just accidental. It's random. It's chance. It's meaningless. Or we can adjust our thinking deliberately and decide to line up and agree with the claims of this book that, that actually there's purpose. There's a God who's genuinely in control of it all. Every detail, every atom, even the things we think, how can he be in control of that? It's so peculiarly unfair or wrong. No, no. For reasons that we won't understand, can't understand, might never be given to understand, we can still trust those things to a God who is good and is working. Working to train us, to perfect us. He has good 
plans, good intentions. It takes, it takes a deliberate intention, a desire, it takes a decision <laughs> to line ourselves up with that perspective. And James calls us to think of it in those eternal terms and to see all the trials we go through deliberately that way. And that's, that's the theme of this, this letter, really, the, the whole book of James as we're going through, God willing, till, till Easter. But, but let me just draw out some things from this passage that we've read. I just want to draw out, first of all, the way that he gives us one particular example of a trial and practically how God's wisdom helps us with it. Secondly, the sharp end of uh, how difficult trials can be because they affect us not just outwardly but inwardly. And then finally, thirdly, the way to fight in the context of trials and temptations. So firstly, an example of a trial. Secondly, the, the, the inward nature of trials that we go through. And then thirdly, the way to fight when we hit trials. Let's, let's look at them in that uh, order. First of all, the example he gives in uh, verses 9 to 11 here is the trial that comes through wealth and poverty or poverty and wealth where, where it says there in verse 9 let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation let the rich in his humiliation so he's giving an example straight up of the kind of things that life throws at us that we need wisdom from God to help us with it's not surprising to see poverty there or to see the lowly brother, as most of our translations will say something like that. The, the brother who is in poverty or the sister, the person that is going through financial disadvantage. If you're in that situation, God knows that that's a trial. But God also knows that it's a trial for us to be wealthy. Now, that may surprise, should surprise us. And we should, we should when, you, when you bump your head up against the Bible, good, stop consider don't read on until you've started to understand what it might mean can wealth be a trial let let the rich boast in his humiliation if you're struggling with wealth well i i, I personally love to struggle with wealth if you let me help you struggle with your wealth if, if you're a member of this church and you're particularly wealthy just cut me a check and, and uh, i'm very happy to share the burden with you of your pain the, the the reality is that wealth in the bible is a trial in ways that it takes an eternal perspective for us to see wealth in fact is terribly dangerous wealth is dangerous because it, there's a for reasons I haven't the time to unpack in depth but but some of it is is consistent with what we've seen if, you, if you've looked at life honestly if you've seen the way that wealth can distract people from what's really valuable the pursuit of wealth the desire for more the the, the kind of rapacious never satisfied longing for further acquisition that can, that can disturb our conscience and cause us to be insensitive and callous to the point of harming even the people that we most love because we crave further benefit, further wealth, further riches. But in all kinds of more subtle ways as well, not necessarily the obvious headline-grabbing ways, just wealth can, can, can just nullify our, our sensitivity, just make, make us generally Spiritually speaking, just dull, just spiritually dim-witted, spiritually stupid, because we're just, we, we're just too satisfied. 
We're too satisfied, we're too protected, we're too insulated to realise our spiritual need, to realise the, the eternal issues, and, and we, we're moving in a destructive direction that way. And that's, friends, that's not hypothetical. That's not just about millionaires. That's not. Do you understand? Always remember when you read about poverty and wealth in the Bible, always remember if you live in Brighton in the 21st century, you are in the top, I don't know what percent to say, but you are wealthy on a global scale. Putting it against the backdrop of the entire humanity, especially humanity through history, you are stinking rich. Even if you're the poorest person in the city, you're still comparatively wealthy in, in connection with the rest of the world. And so for us to sit back carefully when we read these verses is important. Wait a minute, which category am I in, wealthy or poor? Well, don't assume that you're poor. Don't assume that you're lowly. Be careful before you make that categorization of yourself. Generally speaking, we in the West, we, we belong in the, the wealth column. And so what does the Bible call us to do? It calls us to see the danger, to see the kind of spiritual asbestos that we walk around with. You know, that we're not, if we want to be on fire for God, well, your money doesn't help you much with that. And I've noticed just on a personal level, the closest I've got to really poor Christians, the more I've learned usually. And bear in mind as well that most Christians in the world are poor. Most Christians in the world are from the global south, from developing countries, places where there's far more poverty. And usually people in many ways have got more to teach us in the West than we might realise. Often we might find that we go to, go to help or to teach people who are in a poor uh, economic situation and walk away realising we learned way more than we taught. Because such people have a certain maturity and depth, dependence on God that we know so much less about. The wealth is not necessarily a help from an eternal point of view. In fact, it can be a distraction. And yet, the fact that James talks about brothers, he doesn't, he doesn't say, let the, the poor brother do so-and-so and let the rich stranger do the other. No, the, the rich person's a brother, the poor person's the brother or the sister, this is an inclusive letter. James is, James is okay about having poor people, rich people in the same church. Big issue for us. It can be easier for us to say, well, if you're rich, you're not really welcome. You're disqualified by your wealth. Give your money away and you can come in. And various groups and systems over, over the centuries of the church have sometimes gone that route. A vow of poverty. You can't be part of the church unless you're poor. I can see why they'd go that way. Maybe for some people that's exactly what God would say for sure. But it's a, a bad rule to draw a line with because in reality, when you, when you decide against the, the, the trials that come with wealth, well, you'll hit the trials that come with poverty. Trials come either way. They do. And, and, and the trials of wealth may well be the ones that God wants you to go through. And if you are wealthy, if you're a believer in Jesus who happens to be particularly well off, I urge you to consider it a trial. God, how can I come through this trial to maturity? How can I train and become stronger, healthier, lacking nothing spiritually, not just materially? How can that happen? Well, it's going to take the mature attitude that, that James 
recommends here? What does he do? What does he say? How does he help us to get this right? Well, the actual answer might be counterintuitive. The way he calls us to overcome is boasting. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the rich in his humiliation. Boasting is the key. Uh, we, we might think, well, I, I, I would never boast. I'm not, I'm not that kind of person. I, not me. I don't boast. I, I think that's distasteful. I, I, I'm, I'm very proud of I, you know, I take pride in the fact that I don't boast. Hopefully you begin to see the self-contradiction there. If we start boasting in our not boasting, we're fools. No, we, we will all boast. In reality, everybody does boast. It's something you can't avoid. You can't avoid boasting any more than you can avoid your shadow. You, you are always boasting. And what I mean by that is placing confidence in something. You are always placing confidence in something. And the, the, the rich person and the poor person receiving this letter from James, each are urged to learn which way to boast. What you boast in is the secret, is the key. It's, it's also a clue as to the state of your heart. But James says, actively decide what you boast in. You've got the choice. If the Bible says, boast this way, don't boast that way, the suggestion, if you, if you love Jesus, you're reading this book because you want to pursue God and you want to grow, this means you have the option, you have the, the opportunity to develop the way you boast. Your self-confidence or wrong confidence doesn't have to be the full story. You can develop in the way that you boast. You can learn how to think differently. Even the way Paul talks in the earlier part of the New Testament in, in Philippians is very revealing. It's something that we have to learn. As he says in Philippians chapter 4, he says, I have learned in whatever situation to, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's Paul writing near the end of his life. It's near the end of his life that he says, I have learned the secret of contentment, whether I'm abounding, whether I, you know, I'm minted, all blinged up, or whether I'm basically going through real challenges financially. In each circumstance, I'm content. I've learned to be content. There is a journey we have to go on. We don't necessarily flick a switch. We learn how to handle the trials of wealth and poverty as we learn how to evaluate wisely, as we value it properly, as we see through wealth, we see through its falsehood. Wealth is deceiving. We see the value of it more accurately. We remember its source. Where does it come from? Remember what David says in, in 1 Chronicles when he's giving his, uh, the temple, uh, he's speaking about the temple and he's devoting it to God and he says, wealth and honour belong to you, O Lord. What do you have that you have not been given, says the Bible? Nothing that you own is really yours by you earning it. Ultimately, no, 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 no. No, there is, no, there is nothing that you've created in that sense. All is given. All wealth and honour belongs to you. And even, even the reality can be that we can imagine that we've accumulated wealth, we've set ourselves up, 
haven't you often found that even the, the, the sheer enjoyment of your wealth, your prosperity, is denied you on a level that you can't even completely understand. If you don't have an eternal perspective, wealth will never satisfy you anyway. It won't quite because you won't have the God behind it, the giver of the gift to come back to and, and re rejoice and enjoy it through. I remember years ago, as a teenager, I had the privilege of living in Kenya for, for, for a short time and I, I, I was... Uh, I had, it was a hot day once, and I travelled outside the city to, to sit in a tree that I climbed up, up a hill, and I had to travel a long day, uh, bus journey to get to this place, just to have a day on my own, resting, reading, relaxing. I thought, I'm going to get climb up that tree, sit in that tree. I only buy myself a drink on the way there. I get off the bus, I got this drink, and I was so pleased. This bottle, uh, it was like a hot day, this cold, chill drink. I walked, it was still cold when I got up the tree. I was, everything was set, everything was right. And I didn't have a bottle opener. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is, this is just cruel. <laughs> the, the reality is you can accumulate everything. Everything can be set straight, but somehow there's a sense that we don't have a bottle a opener for the thing that, we've, that we don't, we can't even access sometimes the pleasures that we've accumulated through wealth. Somehow there's something in it that's denied us because we don't have the eternal God to give thanks to. We don't enjoy it in, in the light of his love for us. And, in, and because of that, we, we're, not, we're not really enjoying it. We don't know the source. We don't come back to him. We don't ultimately give praise to him. And it's disastrous for us. Let the poor brother or sister boast in their exaltation. You're wealthy spiritually. You have everything in Christ. Really you do, really you do have all things given to you in Christ. And let, let the rich brother or sister, let them boast in their humiliation. Let them see through their wealth. Let them see through their dinner parties. Let them see through that culture, all, all of that power. And you know what it's worth? You know where it's going? You know it's nothing. It's, it's like the flowers of the field, it will fade. You know it's eternally nothing. And you need to see it through that perspective. Give thanks to God for all the blessings, but don't boast in them. Don't put your confidence in them. See them for what they are and learn to value rightly. Let's move on to the sharp end. What I find interesting is, is that James talks about trials throughout this letter, but he's got so much wisdom about the way that they come to us, the different kinds of trials, the various trials, as he said in verse 2. The, 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 the challenge of wealth or poverty is an outward trial, you could say. But, but actually, he, he's going to turn it sharper and more inward here in verse uh, 13 and 15, where he says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. The idea, really, I suppose, is, is like a, a traitor inside the camp. Trials come to us like huge siege engines, you know, like in, in, in the war films from medieval or ancient history, you know, like huge siege towers that come and smash against the walls, or you know, Lord of the Rings or something, you know, these great war battle scenes. Trials hit us, sickness, poverty, wealth, uh, violence, injustice, uh, relational breakdown. These things hit us from outside, but James is saying there's also a traitor, there's a quizzling. There's a turncoat within the walls. Your own desires 
are the, 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 the painful weakness that can be our undoing. And so there's a different kind of trial. There's a temptation that we face inwardly, our desires, our own desires. And, and James wants us to see how to, how to understand these things. First of all, to understand just as much as the outward trials, these inward trials are also under God's control. These things do not happen because God is somehow, uh, somehow, he, he sort of failed to help you, or God isn't really on your side, or as he says here, God is tempting me. When you face temptation, God is not saying, well, you know, have a break, have some sin. You know, this is my idea. I, you know, you, you, you've done so well with your marriage. How about just, you know, having an affair? Because you, you've worked hard. You, you've worked really hard. How about you've, done, you've worked hard this week? Yeah, click on that website. You know, I know that you, you, they say that you shouldn't, but, you know, I'm God. I, I want you to be comforted. I want you to be happy. So, you know, just click on that website. Nobody, you, no one will get, no one understands what you're going through. Your life is difficult. So you just do that. Or maybe you, 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 fiddle that, that money at work. Fiddle it. Just, just uh, take that stuff uh, from the office. Uh, no, it doesn't. You're, you're, you, everyone should realise it's difficult for you. You're going through economic challenges. So, so it doesn't matter if some money gets into that column when it should go into this column. That's OK. God, I'm, I'm nice. I'm God. I look after you this way. No, James, God doesn't tempt you. God doesn't tempt you. When we start thinking, I'm a special case, you know, I call it special case syndrome. We, we're, totally, we're totally opposing the key teaching of Scripture, which we should get, go back in, in Paul into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, verse 13, this key verse, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. No one in a, in a situation of temptation where you're struggling, whether it's a sexual desire or financial greed or temptation for revenge or expressing bitterness or hatred or gossip, or multiple other, you know, greed, gluttony, the different ways in which our desires, our inward desires, seem to push and, 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 and stretch us in different directions. We mustn't think that God is somehow kind of coaching us along in that. We mustn't think that, that somehow God is kind of allowing us to slide. No, 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 no. Friends, God not only is saying no, but he's saying, I will help you with that. This is a, certainly the temptation is a challenge, but it's, it, God is in control of it and God is helping us with it. Just because we have a, an enemy inwardly, a desire that's strong, it doesn't mean that God can't overcome it and we can't overcome it with God's help. This is, this is the key thing. We need to understand the nature of desires. Desires themselves aren't evil. Even the things I've mentioned, desire for food, desire for sex, those things in themselves are not evil. They're part of human nature, the way that we're made. It's the way for, for us to thrive as human beings. What's wrong is when those desires become inordinate. They are not harnessed. They're not, they're not chastened. It's a, it's a bit like a horse and a rider, like a war horse and a rider. A war horse is an incredibly strong creature. But without a rider, it's, it's unaccountably dangerous. And a rider, knowing how to... to uh, to 
actually literally help the horse become meek. You know, the word meek is linked to the bit that's put between the teeth of a, in the mouth of a horse. A horse becoming meek. It doesn't mean it stops being strong. A horse remains mighty and potent. And your desires are meant to be applied and fulfilled fruitfully. But they need to also be chastened and meek. They need to be things that are under control, under your control with the help of God. You becoming a rider, a mighty rider, keeping your desires cultivated, keeping them... (laughs) Ordinate, <laughs> expressly understood, under obedience to the plan and purpose of God, the good, wonderful God who knows how we're made and made us with good purpose in mind. So we come finally to this third point, how to fight, the way to fight. And this is absolutely massive. James says in verses 16 to 18, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What's he saying here? He's saying that the way that desire controls you is by deception. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by the force of desire. That says the only way I can be satisfied, the only way I can be happy and pleased is by gratifying this current instant desire. I must have this and then I will be happy. We're being fools. We're being like the fish that goes for the baited hook. That's that's how desire, that's how temptation works. If there's enough worm on the hook, we will reach for the hook and then wonder why we're dragged away to destruction. This is why James says it leads, sin when it is fully grown brings forth death sin satan temptation is a very skillful angler he will give you whatever it is you desire he will bait the hook with whatever passes your fancy he'll give it to you freely apparently no 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 not freely there is a hook hidden beneath the bait and you are grabbing you are biting onto your death and it comes with deception so James says don't be deceived. Now, what he goes on to say is very revealing. Don't be deceived. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from who? A, a, a Satan with a, with a hook? No, from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's not an angler. He's not, he's not got an angle. He's not trying to trick He's, he's not trying to, to ruin, to destroy, to deplete squeeze your life rather to gift your life to bring forth blessing to train you to strength to see that you lack nothing this is God's good plan for you your blessing and to believe that he is even through the trials difficulties that he's nevertheless my father father of lights in whom there's no shadow of turning there's no shadow of time. I, 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 I've got to come to terms with that every good, perfect gift is from above. I've got to believe it. It's so, it's so disastrously dangerous for a believer, a child of God, to come under the suspicious impression that your Father in heaven means bad for you, that he means harm to you, that he doesn't have good planned for you. 
This is why so much of scripture tells that story. God's people in, 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 in Jeremiah 2, where God has to say to them, have I become a desert to you? Have I become a desert to you, my people? Remember, this is the way that in the garden, at the beginning in Genesis 3, the serpent comes to the man and the woman saying, you shall not surely die. God knows that you will become like him. In other words, the reason God denies you things, the reason God says don't yield to temptation, the reason God squashes your desires is because he doesn't like you, he doesn't trust you, he wants evil for you. And Jesus himself told the story of the, 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 the parable of the talents and the man who, who wasted his life, wasted all of his opportunity, failed to obey Jesus, obey, obey his master in, in, in his life. And the way that he justified his actions was by saying, I knew that you were a hard man. That's what he says to his master. I knew that I couldn't trust you. If I take risks, it will go badly because you're tough. You're a harsh master. And this is so often the way with, with the heart. We, we, assume, we, we assume the worst of the one who is the father of lights in whom there's no shadow of turning. Every good and perfect gift is from him. We should surely come back to a, a joyful, sweet, delightful view of our good and wonderful God who gives of himself freely, generously, without, as it says earlier in the verse, in the, in the chapter, as Matt shared last week, without finding fault. What a kind and, and generous God he is. We can be confident of good things, but we've got to trust him. We've got to learn to trust in his good plan, his good purpose, even in the trials that we go through. And this will help us to endure and even overcome seasons of temptation. This will help us to see differently when the temptation towards sin just seems so compelling and we can hardly see a way out. We think, how am I going to avoid sinning in this situation? It seems so obvious. The only thing I can do is sin because that's the only way that I will find safety, it's the only way I will find satisfaction. That's the only fine way I will find pleasure, happiness and joy. Who told you you'd find those things from sin? Have you forgotten that God is the only one who can promise you those things? Safety, satisfaction, pleasure, joy. They are all at his right hand forevermore. Only God can really make you secure, happy, secure and safe and, and joyful. Only God can bring you pleasure like that. Faith is when we say, okay, I believe that and I will thereby refuse the lies of temptation. And I will learn to harness my desires, make them meek, settle in my heart who's in control. So we've got to learn to fight this way in order to overcome in the trials God gives us. Let's pray, shall we? Some of you right now, the thing that you've actually got to see is the goodness of God, the goodness of God in the giving of his son. As Matt said to us last week, if he did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not along with him freely give us all things? God has been that generous. The real thing for some of you today is to trust him, come to him, the word of truth, as James goes on to say, believe in him. Let, let, let this day, this moment, as you're listening to this message today, let it be the moment where you see for yourself, Jesus is real. I need to trust him. I need to turn my life over to him, put my trust in, believe in him, become a Christian, become a disciple. Father, I pray that you'd help us each to apply these things to our hearts that we might overcome in the trials we face and become stronger 
more mature in the pursuit of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. See you soon.